Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and Agatha Christie's The Mystery of the Blue Train, beginning today with Chapter 9, An Offer Refused. It was rarely that Derek Kettering allowed his temper to get the better of him. An easy-going unsouciant was his characteristic, and it had stood him in good stead in more than one tight corner. Even now, by the time he had left Morell's flat, he had cooled down. He had need of coolness. The corner he was in now was a tighter one than he had ever been in before, and unforeseen factors had arisen with which, for the moment, he did not know how to deal. He strolled along, deep in thought. His brow was furrowed, and there was none of the easy, jaunty manner which sat so well on him. Various possibilities floated through his mind. It might have been said of Derek Kettering that he was less of a fool than he looked. He saw several roads that he might take, one in particular. If he shrank from it, it was for the moment only. Desperate ills need desperate remedies. He had gauged his father-in-law correctly. A war between Derek Kettering and Rufus Van Alden could end only one way. Derek damned money and the power of money vehemently to himself. He walked up St. James's Street, across Piccadilly, and strolled along it in the direction of Piccadilly Circus. As he passed the offices of Thomas Cook & Sons, his footsteps slackened. He walked on, however, still turning the matter over in his mind. Finally, he gave a brief nod of his head, turned sharply, so sharply as to collide with a couple of pedestrians who were following in his footsteps, and went back the way he had come. This time he did not pass Cook's, but went in. The office was comparatively empty, and he got attended to at once. "'I want to go to Nice next week. Will you give me particulars?' "'What date, sir?' "'The 14th. What's the best train?' "'Well, of course, the best train is what they call the blue train. You avoid the tiresome customs business at Calais.' Derek nodded. He knew all this. None better. "'The 14th,' murmured the clerk. "'That's rather soon.' "'The blue train is nearly always booked up.' "'See if there's a berth left,' said Derrick. "'If there is not—' "'He left the sentence unfinished with a curious smile on his face. "'The clerk disappeared for a few minutes and presently returned. "'That is all right, sir. Still three berths left. "'I will book you one of them. What name?' "'Pavitt,' said Derrick. He gave the address of his rooms in German Street. The clerk nodded, finished writing it down, wished Derek good morning politely, and turned his attention to the next client. "'I want to go to Nice on the 14th. Isn't there a train called the Blue Train?' Derek looked round sharply. Coincidence. A strange coincidence. He remembered his own half-whimsical words to Morel. Portrait of a lady with grey eyes. I don't suppose I'll ever see her again. But he had seen her again, and what was more, she proposed to travel to the Riviera on the same day as he did. Just for a moment, a shiver passed over him. In some ways he was superstitious. He had said, half-laughingly, that this woman might bring him bad luck. Suppose, suppose that should prove to be true. From the doorway he looked back at her as she stood talking to the clerk. For once his memory had not played him false. 
"'A lady, a lady in every sense of the word. "'Not very young, but singularly beautiful. "'But with something. "'Gray eyes that might perhaps see too much. "'He knew as he went out the door "'that in some way he was afraid of this woman. "'He had a sense of fatality. "'He went back to his rooms in German Street "'and summoned his man. "'Take this check, Pavette. "'Cash it first thing in the morning.' "'and go round to Cook's in Piccadilly. "'They will have some tickets there booked in your name. "'Pay for them, and bring them back.' "'Very good, sir.' Pavet withdrew. "'Derrick strolled over to a side-table "'and picked up a handful of letters. "'They were of a type only too familiar. "'Bills, small bills, and large bills, "'one and all pressing for payment. "'The tone of the demands was still polite.' Derrick knew how soon that polite tone would change if, if certain news became public property. He flung himself moodily into a large leather-covered chair. A damned hole. That's what he was in. Yes, a damned hole. And ways of getting out of that damned hole were not too promising. Pavette appeared with a discreet cough. A gentleman to see you, sir. Major Knighton. Knighton, eh? Derrick sat up, frowned, became suddenly alert. He said in a softer tone, almost to himself, Knighton, I wonder what I wonder what's in the wind now. Shall I show him in, sir? His master nodded. When Knighton entered the room, he found a charming and genial host awaiting him. Very good of you to look me up, said Derrick. Knighton was nervous. The other's keen eyes noticed that at once. The errand on which the secretary had come was clearly distasteful to him. He replied almost mechanically to Derek's easy flow of conversation. He declined to drink, and, if anything, his manner became stiffer than before. Derek appeared at last to notice it. "'Well,' he said cheerfully, "'what does my esteemed father-in-law want with me?' "'You have come on his business, I take it?' Knighton did not smile in reply. "'I have, yes,' he said carefully. "'I—I I wish Mr. Van Alden had chosen someone else.' Derek raised his eyebrows in mock dismay. "'Is it as bad as all that? "'I'm not very thin-skinned, I can assure you, Knighton.' "'No,' said Knighton. "'But this—' He paused. Derek eyed him keenly. "'Go on, out with it,' he said kindly. "'I can imagine my dear father-in-law's errands might not always be pleasant ones.' Knighton cleared his throat. He spoke formally in tones that he strove to render free of embarrassment. "'I am directed by Mr. Van Alder to make you a definite offer.' "'An offer?' For a moment, Derek showed his surprise. Knighton's opening words were clearly not what he expected. He offered a cigarette to Knighton, lit one himself, and sank back in his chair, murmuring in a slightly sardonic voice, "'An offer? That sounds rather interesting. Shall I go on?' "'Yes, please. You must forgive my surprise. But it seems to me that my dear father-in-law has rather climbed down since our chat this morning.' and climbing down is not what one associates with strong men. Napoleons of finance, etc. 
"'It shows. "'I think it shows that he finds his position weaker than he thought it to be.' "'Dighton listened politely to the easy, mocking voice, "'but no sign of any kind showed itself on his rather stolid countenance. "'He waited until Derek had finished, and then he said quietly, "'I will state the proposition in the fewest possible words.' "'Dighton did not look at the other. "'His voice was curt and matter-of-fact. "'The matter is simply this. "'Mrs. Kettering, as you know, is about, to, is about to file a petition for divorce. "'If the case goes undefended, "'you will receive 100000 on the day that the decree is made absolute.' "'Derek, in the act of lighting his cigarette, suddenly stopped dead. "'A hundred thousand? he said sharply. "'Dollars?' "'Pounds.' "'There was a dead silence for at least two minutes.' Kettering had his brows together, linking. A hundred thousand pounds! It meant Morel and a continuance of his pleasant, carefree life. It meant that Van Alden knew something. Van Alden did not pay for nothing. He got up and stood by the chimney-piece. "'And in the event of my refusing his handsome offer?' he asked, with a cold, ironical politeness. Knighton made a deprecating gesture. "'I can assure you, Mr. Kettering,' he said earnestly, "'that it is with the utmost unwillingness that I came here with this message.' "'That's all right,' said Kettering. "'Don't distress yourself. It's not your fault. "'Now then, I asked you a question. Will you answer it?' Knighton also rose. He spoke more reluctantly than before. "'In the event of your refusing this proposition,' "'He said, "'Mr. Van Alden wished me to tell you in plain words "'that he proposes to break you. "'Just that.' "'Kettering raised his eyebrows, "'but he retained his light, amused manner. "'Well, well,' he said. "'I suppose he can do it. "'I certainly should not be able to put up much of a fight "'against America's man of millions. "'A hundred thousand! "'If you are going to bribe a man, "'there's nothing like doing it thoroughly.' "'Supposing I were to tell you that for two hundred thousand I'd do what he wanted. "'What then?' "'I would take your message back to Mr. Van Alden,' said Knighton, unemotionally. "'Is that your answer?' "'No,' said Derrick. "'Funny enough, it is not. "'You can go back to my father-in-law and tell him to take himself and his bribes to hell. "'Is that clear?' "'Perfectly,' said Knighton. He got up, hesitated, and then flushed. "'I—you will allow me to say, Mr. Kettering, that I'm glad you've answered as you have.' Derek did not reply. When the other had left the room, he remained for a minute or two lost in thought. A curious smile came to his lips. "'And that is that,' he said softly. "'We'll return with Chapter Ten of The Mystery of the Blue Train, by Agatha Christie, right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 10, On the Blue Train. Dad! Mrs. Kettering started violently. Her nerves were not completely under control this morning. Very perfectly dressed in a long mink coat and a little hat of Chinese lacquer red, she had been walking along the crowded platform of Victoria, deep in thought, 
and her father's sudden appearance and hearty greeting had an unlooked-for effect upon her. "'Why, Ruth, how you jumped! I didn't expect to see you, I suppose, Dad. You said good-bye to me last night, and said you had a conference this morning.' "'So I have,' said Van Alden. "'But you are more to me than any number of darn conferences. I came to take a last look at you, since I'm not going to see you for some time.' "'That's very sweet of you, Dad. "'I wish you were coming, too.' "'What would you say if I did?' "'The remark was merely a joking one. "'He was surprised to see the quick color flame in Ruth's cheeks. "'For a moment he almost thought he saw dismay flash out of her eyes. "'She laughed uncertainly and nervously. "'Just for a moment I, I really thought you meant it,' she said. "'Would you have been pleased?' "'Of course.' "'She spoke with exaggerated emphasis. "'Well,' said Ben Alden, "'that's good. "'It isn't really for very long, Dad,' "'continued Ruth. "'You know, you're coming out next month.' "'Ah,' said Ben Alden, unemotionally. "'Sometimes I guess I will go to one of those "'smug guys in Harley Street "'and have him tell me that I need sunshine "'and change of air right away.' "'Don't be so lazy.' cried Ruth. Next month is ever so much nicer than this month out there. You've got all sorts of things. You can't possibly leave just now. Well, that's so, I suppose, said Van Alden, with a sigh. You'd better be getting on board this train of yours, Ruth. Which is your seat? Ruth Kettering looked vaguely up at the train. At the door of one of the Pullman cars, a thin, tall woman dressed in black was standing. Ruth Kettering's maid. She drew aside as her mistress came up to her. "'I've put your dressing-case under your seat, madam, in case you should need it. Shall I take the rugs, or will you require one?' "'No, no, I shan't want one. Better go and find your own seat now, Mason.' "'Yes, madam.' The maid departed. Van Alden entered the Pullman car with Ruth. She found her seat— and Van Alden deposited various papers and magazines on the table in front of her. The seat opposite to her was already taken, and the American gave a cursory glance at its occupant. He had a fleeting impression of attractive gray eyes and a neat traveling costume. He indulged in a little more desultory conversation with Ruth, the kind of talk peculiar to those seeing other people off by train. Presently, as whistles blew, he glanced at his watch. "'I'd best be clearing out of here.' "'Goodbye, Ruth. Don't worry. I will attend to things.' "'Oh, father!' He turned back sharply. There had been something in Ruth's voice, something so entirely foreign to her usual manner, that he was startled. It was almost a cry of despair. She had made an impulsive movement towards him, but in another minute she was mistress of herself once more. "'Till next month,' she said cheerfully. Two minutes later, the train started. Ruth sat very still, biting her underlip and trying hard to keep the unaccustomed tears from her eyes. She felt a sudden sense of horrible desolation. There was a wild longing upon her to jump out of the train and to go back before it was too late. She, so calm, so self-assured, for the first time in her life, felt like a leaf swept by the wind. If her father knew, what would he say? "'Madness,' 
"'Yes, just that, madness. "'For the first time in her life she was swept away by emotion, "'swept away to the point of doing a thing "'which even she knew to be incredibly foolish and reckless. "'She was enough Van Alden's daughter to realize her own folly, "'and level-headed enough to condemn her own action. "'But she was his daughter in another sense also. "'She had that same iron determination that would have what it wanted, "'and once it had made up its mind, would not be balked.' From her cradle she had been self-willed. The very circumstances of her life had developed that self-will in her. It drove her now, remorselessly. Well, the die was cast. She must go through with it now. She looked up, and her eyes met those of the woman sitting opposite. She had a sudden fancy that in some way this other woman had read her mind. She saw in those gray eyes understanding, and yes, compassion. It was only a fleeting impression. The faces of both women hardened to well-bred impassiveness. Mrs. Kettering took up a magazine, and Catherine Gray looked out of the window and watched the seemingly endless vista of depressing streets and suburban houses. Ruth found an increasing difficulty in fixing her mind on the printed page in front of her. In spite of herself, a thousand apprehensions preyed on her mind. What a fool she had been! What a fool she was! Like all cool and self-sufficient people, when she did lose her self-control, she lost it thoroughly. It was too late. Was it too late? Oh, for someone to speak to, for someone to advise her. She had never before had such a wish. She would have scorned the idea of relying on any judgment other than her own. But now, what was the matter with her? Panic. Yes, that would describe it best, panic. She, Ruth Kettering, was completely and utterly panic-stricken. She stole a covert glance at the figure opposite. If only she knew someone like that, some nice, cool, calm, sympathetic creature. That was the sort of person one could talk to. But you can't, of course, confide in a stranger. And Ruth smiled to herself a little at the idea. She picked up the magazine again. Really, she must control herself. After all, she had thought all this out. She had decided of her own free will. What happiness had she ever had in her life up to now? She said to herself restlessly, Why shouldn't I be happy? No one will ever know. It seemed no time before Dover was reached. Ruth was a good sailor. She disliked the cold, and was glad to reach the shelter of the private cabin she had telegraphed for. Although she would not have admitted the fact, Ruth was in some ways superstitious. She was of the order of people to whom coincidence appeals. After disembarking at Calais, and settling herself down with her maid in her double compartment in the blue train, she went along to the luncheon car. It was with a little shock of surprise that she found herself set down to a small table with, opposite her, the same woman who had been with her vis-à-vis -vis in the Pullman. A faint smile came to the lips of both women. "'This is quite a coincidence,' said Mrs. Kettering. "'I know,' said Catherine. "'It's odd the way things happen.' A flying attendant shot up to them with the wonderful velocity always displayed by the Compagnie International des Wagons-Lits, and deposited two cups of soup. 
By the time the omelette succeeded the soup, they were chatting together in friendly fashion. "'It will be heavenly to get into the sunshine,' sighed Ruth. "'I'm sure it will be a wonderful feeling.' "'Do you know the Riviera well?' "'No, this is my first visit.' "'Fancy that.' "'You go every year, I expect?' "'Practically. January and February in London are horrible.' "'I've always lived in the country. "'They're not very inspiring months there, either. "'Mostly mud.' "'What made you suddenly decide to travel?' "'Money,' said Catherine. "'For ten years I've been a paid companion "'with just enough money of my own "'to buy myself strong country shoes. "'Now I've been left with what seems to me a fortune, "'though I dare say it would not seem so to you.' "'Now I wonder why you say that, "'that it would not seem so to me.' Catherine laughed. "'I don't really know. I suppose one forms impressions without thinking of it. I put you down in my own mind as one of the very rich of the earth. It was just an impression. I dare say I am wrong.' "'No,' said Ruth. "'You're not wrong.' She had suddenly become very grave. "'I wish you would tell me what other impressions you formed about me.' "'I—' Ruth swept on, disregarding the other's embarrassment. "'Oh, please, don't be conventional. I want to know. As we left Victoria, I looked across at you, and I had the sort of feeling that you, well, understood what was going on in my mind. "'I can assure you I am not a mind-reader,' said Catherine, smiling. "'No, but will you tell me, please, just what you thought?' Ruth's eagerness was so intense and so sincere that she carried her point. "'I will tell you if you like, but you must not think me impertinent. "'I thought that for some reason you were in great distress of mind, "'and I was sorry for you.' "'You are right. You are quite right. I am in terrible trouble. I, "'I should like to tell you something about it, if I may.' "'Oh, dear,' Catherine thought to herself, "'how extraordinarily like the world seems to be everywhere.' "'People were always telling me things in St. Mary Mead, "'and it is just the same thing here, "'and I really don't want to hear anyone's troubles.' "'She replied politely. "'Do tell me.' "'They were just finishing their lunch. "'Ruth gulped down her coffee, rose from her seat, "'and quite oblivious of the fact that Catherine "'had not begun to sip her coffee, said, "'Come to my compartment with me.' There were two single compartments with a communicating door between them. In the second of them a thin maid, whom Catherine had noticed at Victoria, was sitting very upright on the seat, clutching a big scarlet Morocco case with the initials R.V.K. on it. Mrs. Kettering pulled the communicating door to and sank down on the seat. Catherine sat down beside her. "'I am in trouble, and I don't know what to do. There is a man whom I am fond of.' "'Very fond of, indeed. "'We cared for each other when we were young, "'and we were thrust apart most brutally and unjustly. "'And now we have come together again.' "'Yes?' "'I am going to meet him now. "'Oh, I dare say you think it's all wrong, "'but you don't know the circumstances. "'My husband is impossible. "'He's treated me disgracefully.' "'Yes?' said Catherine again. "'What I feel so badly about is this. "'I have deceived my father. 
"'It was he who came to see me off at Victoria today. "'He wishes me to divorce my husband, "'and, of course, he has no idea "'that I am going to meet this other man. "'He would think it extraordinarily foolish.' "'Well, don't you think it is?' "'I suppose it is.' "'Ruth Kettering looked down at her hands. "'They were shaking violently. "'But I, I can't draw back now.' "'Why not?' "'It's all arranged, and it would break his heart.' "'Don't you believe it,' said Catherine robustly. "'Hearts are pretty tough. "'He will think I have no courage, no strength of purpose.' "'It seems to me an awfully silly thing that you're going to do,' said Catherine. "'I think you realize that yourself.' Ruth Kettering buried her face in her hands. "'I, I don't know.' "'Ever since I left Victoria, I've had a horrible feeling of something, "'something that's coming to me very soon, that I can't escape.' "'She clutched convulsively at Catherine's hand. "'You must think I'm mad talking to you like this. "'But I tell you, I know something horrible is going to happen.' "'Don't think it,' said Catherine. "'Try to pull yourself together. "'You could send your father a wire from Paris, if you like, "'and he would come to you at once.' the other brightened. Yes, I could do that. Dear old Dad, it is strange, but I never knew until today how terribly fond of him I am. She sat up and dried her eyes with a handkerchief. I've been very foolish. Thank you so much for letting me talk to you. I don't know why I got into such a strange, hysterical state. She got up. I'm quite all right now, I suppose, really. I just needed someone to talk to. I can't think now why I've been making such an absolute fool of myself. Catherine got up, too. I'm so glad you feel better, she said, trying to make her voice sound as conventional as possible. She was only too well aware that the aftermath of confidences is embarrassment. She added tactfully, I must be going back to my own compartment. She emerged into the corridor at the same time as the maid was also coming out from the next door. The latter looked towards Catherine, over her shoulder, and an expression of intense surprise showed itself on her face. Catherine turned also, but by that time whoever it was who had aroused the maid's interest had retreated into his or her compartment, and the corridor was empty. Catherine walked down it to regain her own place, which was in the next coach. As she passed the end compartment, the door opened, and a woman's face looked out for a moment, and then pulled the door to sharply. It was a face not easily forgotten, as Catherine was to know when she saw it again. A beautiful face, oval and dark, very heavily made up in a bizarre fashion. Catherine had a feeling that she had seen it somewhere before. She regained her own compartment without other adventure and sat for some time thinking of the confidence which had just been made to her. She wondered idly who the woman in the mink coat might be, wondered also how the end of her story would turn out. If I have stopped anyone from making an idiot of themselves, I suppose I've done good work, she thought to herself. But who knows? That is the kind of woman who is hard-headed and egotistical all her life, and it might be good for her to do the other sort of thing for a change. Oh, well, I don't suppose I shall ever see her again. She certainly won't want to see me again. 
"'That's the worst of letting people tell you things. "'They never do. "'She hoped that she would not be given the same table at dinner. "'She reflected, not without humor, "'that it might be awkward for both of them. "'Leaning back with her head against a cushion, "'she felt tired and vaguely depressed. "'They had reached Paris, "'and the slow journey round the Sancher, "'with its interminable stops and waits, "'was very wearisome.' When they arrived at the Gare de Lyon, she was glad to get out and walk up and down the platform. The keen, cold air was refreshing after the steam-heated train. She observed with a smile that her friend of the mink coat was solving the possible awkwardness of the dinner problem in her own way. A dinner basket was being handed up and received through the window by the maid. When the train started once more, and dinner was announced by a violent ringing of bells, Catherine went along to it much relieved in mind. Her vis-a-vis tonight was of an entirely different kind. A small man, distinctly foreign in appearance, with a rigidly waxed mustache and an egg-shaped head which he carried rather on one side. Catherine had taken in a book to dinner with her. She found the little man's eyes fixed on it with a kind of twinkling amusement. "'I see, madame, that you have a Roman policier. You have fond of such things?' "'They amuse me,' Catherine admitted. The little man nodded with the air of complete understanding. "'They have a good sale always, so I am told. "'Now why is that, eh, mademoiselle? "'I ask it of you as a student of human nature. "'Why should that be?' Catherine felt more and more amused. "'Perhaps they give the illusion of living an exciting life,' she suggested. He nodded gravely. "'Yes, there is something in that.' "'Of course, one knows that such things don't really happen.' Catherine was continuing, but he interrupted her sharply. "'Sometimes, mademoiselle, sometimes. "'I who speak to you, as have happened to me.' She threw him a quick, interested glance. "'Someday, who knows, you might be in the thick of things,' he went on. "'It is all chance.' "'I don't think it's likely,' said Catherine. "'Nothing of that kind ever happens to me.' He leaned forward. "'Would you like it to?' The question startled her, and she drew in her breath sharply. "'It is my fancy, perhaps,' said the little man, as he dexterously polished one of the forks. "'But I think that you have a yearning in you for interesting happenings. "'Eh bien, mademoiselle,' All through my life I have observed one thing. All one wants, one gets. Who knows? His face screwed itself up comically. You may get more than you bargained for. Is that prophecy? asked Catherine, smiling as she rose from the table. The little man shook his head. I never prophecy, he declared pompously. It is true. "'that I have the habit of being always right, "'but I do not boast of it. "'Good night, mademoiselle, and may you sleep well.' "'Catherine went back along the train, "'amused and entertained by her little neighbor. "'She passed the open door of her friend's compartment "'and saw the conductor making up the bed. "'The lady in the mink coat was standing, "'looking out of the window. "'The second compartment, "'as Catherine saw through the communicating door, "'was empty.' 
with rugs and bags heaped up on the mat. The maid was not there. Catherine found her own bed prepared, and since she was tired, she went to bed and switched off her light about half-past nine. She woke with a sudden start. How much time had passed, she did not know. Glancing at her watch, she found that it had stopped. A feeling of intense uneasiness pervaded her and grew stronger moment by moment. At last she got up, threw her dressing gown round her shoulders, and stepped out into the corridor. The whole train seemed wrapped in slumber. Catherine let down the window and sat by it for some minutes, drinking in the cool night air and trying vainly to calm her uneasy fears. She presently decided that she would go along to the end and ask the conductor for the right time so that she could set her watch. She found, however, that his little chair was vacant. She hesitated for a moment and then walked through into the next coach. She looked down the long, dim line of the corridor and saw, to her surprise, that a man was standing with his hand on the door of the compartment occupied by the lady in the mink coat. That is to say, she thought it was the compartment. Probably, however, she was mistaken. He stood there for a moment or two with his back to her, seeming uncertain and hesitating in his attitude. Then he slowly turned, and with an odd feeling of fatality, Catherine recognized him as the same man whom she had noticed twice before, once in the corridor of the Savoy Hotel and once in Cook's offices. Then he opened the door of the compartment and passed in, drawing it to behind him. An idea flashed across Catherine's mind. Could this be the man of whom the other woman had spoken, the man she was journeying to meet? Then Catherine told herself that she was romancing, in all probability she had mistaken the compartment. She went back to her own carriage. Five minutes later the train slackened speed. There was the long, plaintive hiss of the Westinghouse brake, and a few minutes later the train came to a stop at Lyon. Join us next week for Chapter 11, Murder, and the Mystery of the Blue Train by Agatha Christie. I wanted to give you a couple of updates. We have a new interview-style show going, and it's called 1001 True Stories with Brian Tremblay. Everyone has a story. It might be a story of when you saw a ghost. It could be any story, a story of a paranormal experience, a story of a close call, a story of a family camping disaster. Uh, it could be a funny story. It could be a horrific story. But we're looking for stories, and we play new episodes now every Saturday at noon Eastern Time. Again, the name of the show is 1001 True Stories with Brian Tremblay. And if you'd like to share a story, you can get in touch with him at brian at morinstreetmedia.com spelled M-O-R-I-N streetmedia.com brian at morinstreetmedia.com Also, we've had some reviews here for 1001 Stories for the Road. The first one, True Entertainment, five stars, 1001 Stories for the Road. Always enjoyable, great for relaxing. That one from 222-like, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, North London Listener, five stars, 1001 Stories for the Road. I read The Moonstone many years ago, so I know the ending, but that seems to make it even more enjoyable to listen to the twists and turns and recognize the clues dropped so skillfully by the author. 
"'I love the ending of the Moonstone, "'and I wonder whether Wilkie Collins "'was considered very advanced for his time "'to recognize that the rightful place "'for the Moonstone Diamond "'to end up at the close of the book "'was in India, in the hands of the Hindu gods, "'rather than sparkling in Rachel Verinder's décolletage. "'That one from North London fan, "'Apple Podcast, Great Britain. "'Thank you both for these kind reviews "'for 1001 Stories for the Road. "'Reviews are always appreciated, "'and when you share our show,' That's greatly appreciated as well. Join us next week for Chapter 11, Murder and Beyond. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.